The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Well, welcome to Genesis. Glad you guys are here. We just did this a couple nights ago, so it's fun we get to do it again. Uh, We canceled last week because of the snow, and the Lord has assured me that we will not have any more snow this winter, so uh, this will not be a problem again. Um, My name is Michael, and um, if you're here for the very first time, a special welcome to you for coming, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, And one of the things that we really uh, want to happen for you as you've been coming to Genesis, whether it's just been coming for a week or coming for a few months, uh, is we want you to connect with everything that's happening uh, in this community. And uh, the best way to do that is um, uh, help us get to know you um, and I I think you were greeted when you came in with one of those Get Connected cards, and we say this every week, we'll keep saying it, but um, if you haven't filled one of those out, uh, that's our only shot, so to speak, of of getting to know uh, who you are and where you're at and helping us to come alongside you uh, on your journey of faith. And so uh, if you have not done that yet, you can fill one out online or you can fill out one of those cards, but we really want you to be connected with everything that's happening here in the community because we believe good things are happening. God's doing some good things. So uh, take time to do that. Um, two things specifically I'll mention coming up uh, this weekend. If you're a woman, raise your hand. Ladies, be proud. Okay, we only have a few who are proud to be women. Really? You guys aren't proud to be ladies? You want to be men? Come on. Ladies? Anyone? All right. I got like three more people on that one. I think next week we'll talk about identity crisis and... Um, Uh, This coming Saturday uh, here at the church, uh, the women from Hope Christian Church and uh, women from Genesis are going to be getting together for uh, a tea from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock. I know that's very British, but uh, they're going to be having a tea, and a couple women from Genesis are going to be sharing their story of uh, uh, how God has worked uh, in their life, and some folks from Hope Christian Church as well are going to be sharing their story. So if you want some more information about that, that's here uh, this coming Saturday, 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock. Uh, Jen Zickel, um, which I don't know where she is. She's here somewhere, right? (laughs) This is Jen. So if you didn't see that hand that just went up, uh, she's over there. Uh, She'll help you, give you some more information about uh, what's happening here on uh, Saturday at 1 o'clock. And then our biggest thing that's happening right now within this community is our life groups. And uh, this is, we're doing life together, so to speak, in a, a large context, but we realize that we can't truly get known and be known and no other people in such a large setting. And so we have a thing called life groups that meet throughout the week. And this coming week is uh, we're starting a brand new, all life groups are starting over, so to speak. A brand new trimester of life groups are underway. We're offering nine different life groups this first trimester. Uh, five of um, them are for men, four from women. And we have one that meets Monday through Thursday. So they don't meet uh, tonight, obviously. And uh, Friday and Saturday, there's no life groups that meet. So Monday through Thursday, you have an opportunity to connect in a smaller context um, with a smaller community. So if you've not signed up or registered for a life group, uh, sign up on the computers in the back um, because they start this week. And once tonight is over, we're going to be shutting down uh, registration, um, as it were, for life groups. So if you're not signed up, make sure you get signed up because we're starting this week. So... um, Hey, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get started. God, please uh, be good to us tonight. I just pray, um, as I pray often, that your voice 
would be the loudest voice that we hear uh, tonight in our midst. And Father, I don't claim to have an idea of where every single heart is in this place and where every single mind is, but I give thanks that you do. And so, Father, I pray that uh, you would speak in ways that each person uh, that is here uh, tonight in this place uh, can hear you and can understand. And more than just hearing and understanding, that uh, tonight, God, you would give us courage and give us a spirit that would want to respond to your voice, respond to what you would be saying to us uh, in this place tonight. So, God, we give thanks for being good and kind and gracious and loving and faithful. And uh, we give thanks that we can gather for a celebration such as this, uh, that we can gather week after week after week in just freedom uh, as a community, uh, amongst friends and family. And, um, God, we just give thanks. This is a great gift. And so we give it to you tonight and ask that you would bless. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been uh, in the Gospel of Mark over the past a uh, few months, and we're slowly working our way through this story, uh, the gospel story, uh, according to Mark. And um, we're in the midst of uh, an interaction between Jesus and the or Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, on Thursday night, if you weren't here, the Pharisees were rather perturbed of who Jesus was keeping company with, and so they came and asked Jesus a question. And the question was uh, really revealing of where their heart was. But they said to Jesus. Why do you hang out with, why are you building relationships with, why are you dining with sinners and tax collectors? This was their question uh, that they came to Jesus with, and he gave them a a very clear answer. Tonight, we're going to finish the rest of this uh, because the Pharisees come to Jesus with two more questions of, why why don't your disciples do this? And then they're going to come and say, The Sabbath, why don't you keep and observe Sabbath laws? So they're going to hit Jesus with two more questions, very revealing of who they are and where they are. And then Jesus finishes off by asking them a question that renders them silence, uh, silent. So this is where we find ourselves tonight uh, in the end of Mark chapter 2 and the very beginning of Mark chapter 3. I wanted to do some word association. I'm going to say a word. You're going to think. You don't need to shout it out. I just want you to think. What is the first word that comes to mind when I say the word Pharisee? Now, you might have a couple that come to mind. Just don't say it out loud. Word association. You don't want to bias anyone else with your words. I say Pharisee. What does that equal to you? What is that? What comes into mind? I'm guessing some of the words that probably came to mind, um, at least they came to my mind, were fake or religious or cruel or legalistic, maybe two-faced, duplicitous, or I'm going to guess, and you can show me a hand, uh, how many people, when I said Pharisee, the very first thing that popped into your mind was hypocrite, or hypocrites. Hypocrites actually is just a a means, a play actor. Uh, That's what the the word, uh, that's the word picture, so to speak, of what a hypocrite means is they're playing a part. And so when you call someone a hypocrite, that's what you're essentially calling them. You're calling them an actor. Uh, They have a play, a certain role that they're trying to achieve. They're playing that part, but they're only playing that part over here, not necessarily over here. And depending on the setting, the environment, the people, the play changes and their role changes. So when you call someone a hypocrite, you're calling them a play actor. They're just acting out. Now, as I've been thinking... Um, 
because we're going to come up on some pretty intense conversations with the Pharisees. And I have been asking the question, were they always like this? Because the Pharisees we meet in the Gospels, it happened to pretty much all of us in here. We thought of hypocrites or fake or these duplicit people. Were they always like that? Was there ever a point in their history where they actually were on the right course and they somehow lost their way? Was there any point in time when the Pharisees got going where they actually had a good relationship with God where if we did word association back in the day, people would have been like, these are the most godly, faithful, loving people that we know. Would that have ever happened? And consequently, when we meet these Pharisees in the Gospels, we meet a group of men who ultimately have lost their way. And I wonder if you've experienced that, where you feel like you've lost your way. It's kind of like the individual who vows, like, devoutly, I will grow up and I will not be like my parents. I will, I will not be like my mother or I will not be, my, like, be like my father, only to one day wake up and you look in the mirror and you're like, oh my goodness, I just saw a reflection of my mom or I just saw a reflection of my father. And you think to yourself, how could that possibly have happened? I vowed I would never be like this. And then one day you wake up and that's the reflection you see. Have you ever examined your own life with some tough questions of uh, something along these lines of, when did I get to be so cynical? Like, what happened that I became this just cynic? Everything that is around me and is happening, I'm so cynical. Or when did I get to be so jaded or just bitter towards God or towards people? Or when did I get to be so apathetic or so indifferent towards God, towards people? about this one? When did I get to be so consumed with me? What happened that I became this individual who is so wrapped up in myself? You say maybe to yourself, you know, I used to be a person who had this incredible childlike faith. I just believed. My faith was like that of a little kid. I used to have that childlike faith, or I used to be so compassionate, or I used to have so much passion and so much vision, or I never used to be so self-centered. I realize these are tough examining questions, but as I'm thinking about the Pharisees and they lost their way, I see that it's easy for us to lose our way. We say, we set out in one course of our life saying, I'm going to be like this. Only three years down the road, we've veered off course somehow, some way, and we're becoming the very thing that we swore we would never become. Now, I've alluded to this, but it might shock you. The Pharisees were not always like the guys that we see in the Gospels. There was a point in time in history where people would have looked at the Pharisees and said, these guys are devout men, willing to fight for what they believe in, willing to give their life to make sure that God as Yahweh will hold firm for generations to come. People would have been proud to associate with these men. Now, this is going to be a bit of a, a history lesson, uh, but I want you to understand who these guys were. Because as you understand who they are, it will give you a better understanding of the men that we're meeting in the Gospels. And this is not to have some sense of compassion, so to speak. It's a sense to say it's very easy to lose your way. 
It happens often and it happens quickly. Like very sneaky, very stealth, as it were. You're walking in one way and before you, you wake up one morning, you're like, I cannot believe I'm here. How did I become this person? Well, 300 years before we're going to meet Jesus here in the Gospels, there was a man called uh, Alexander the Great. I'm sure you've heard of him. He loved his, where we get the game, Risk. He wanted to uh, take over the world, as it were. And uh, Alexander the Great, the Persians at the time, these were the guys who, the, the nation, the country that was ruling the world. Alexander the Great conquered the Persians and took over. Uh, before Alexander, though, the Persians uh, were very kind uh, to people of Jewish uh, faith, people of Jewish background, meaning they let them practice their Jewish traditions. They let them worship Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. But when Alexander the Great came on the scene, he wanted to dominate uh, the Jews in every single aspect of life, and to that, domination meant uh, adopting a Greek way of life, a Greek way of uh, thinking, uh, a Greek way of just pleasures, things like marked by beauty. And really what came to happen was uh, Alexander and the Greek way was humanism. It was a very self-centered, self-focused. They were very uh, about uh, themselves, uh, humanism. Well, a hundred years after Alexander, uh, the Middle Eastern world uh, had been completely uh, converted to Greek ways. And the Jewish leaders were also becoming very Greek. So the people were, who were once Jewish now were becoming coming consumed with Greek ways, even the Jewish leaders. And so there was a group of men who said, we are going to take a stand for our faith. We are going to take a stand for what we believe in. And they were called the Hasidim. And they refused to be converted. And they believed that they were the people of God, that there was one God. His name was Yahweh. There were not many gods, but one God. And they were going to worship this one God, Yahweh. And so out of this Hasidim group, a man who said, we're going to take a stand for our faith, everyone else around us is falling apart, giving in to humanism. A group known as the opposition party, meaning they were opposing what was happening in culture, came to, came to be known as the Pharisees. The Pharisees out of this Hasidim group, they opposed a way of life that said, we will worship anything and everything. We are losing sight of who we are and ultimately who Yahweh is. So what started as the Hasidims trying to preserve their way of life and faith turned into this opposition party known as the Pharisees. And they ultimately not only opposed Jewish people who were becoming Hellenized, they started opposing even leaders in the Jewish community who were becoming Hellenized. This at the time was a good thing. They were fighting for their faith because they didn't want their brothers and their sisters falling to the wayside of Greek ways. Being a Pharisee, I didn't know if you, this is what it means, is a separate one or separate, separated. That's Pharisee. They were separated from the way of culture. And separated mean they wanted to be separate for God and for their faith. And the Greeks fought very hard uh, to force Jews to worship the pantheon of gods uh, that they had, which were absolutely many. And they started persecuting the Jewish people. They started building temples in Jerusalem where people were worshiping Zeus. If you're a Jewish person worshiping Zeus, that's not a good thing. But that's what was happening. 
And in many ways, when they started constructing temples, those of you who are history buffs uh, might have heard of a, a war called the Maccabean War. And this is Judas Maccabeus said, no, I'm going to fight uh, this from happening. Um, I do not want uh, the Greek ways um, taking over our Jewish faith, our Jewish ways, Jewish culture. Um, not long after the Greeks had taken over, the Romans start to move in. And so roughly around uh, 100 years, 200 years, give or take, uh, which I know is a century, um, the Romans now had, had moved into town and conquered uh, the Greeks. And so by the time Jesus is about to come on the scene, now the Romans are in charge. The Romans are in rule. Around 37 BC, there's a guy by the name, if you know your New Testament, called Herod. And Herod was in charge now of the area of Judah where we're seeing all of the Gospels here begin to unfold. Well, in this transition from Greek to now Roman rule to my question is, what happened to the Pharisees? And the answer to that is, they were still standing strong. There's a group of men who are still holding out, still fighting for what they believe, fighting for their faith uh, and their Jewish identity. Uh, these guys, if you can only imagine over a period of 200 years, they're having to fight for their faith, fight for their identity. You can only imagine that they're very courageous, they're very bold, they're very uh, aggressive, and they're very fiercely devout. So the the Pharisees, as we're starting to see them in the Gospels in the New Testament, you might start to get a picture of why they're like this. These guys were hardcore, like hardcore. This was the opposition party, and they would not give in to the culture. So in, in order to preserve Jewish faith tradition, what started happening was rules and traditions and customs started to be developed in order to pursue, preserve Jewish faith, Jewish identity. Because they didn't want culture, again, influencing the Jewish people. We see this happening in Christian culture. The parallel would be uh, there's certain denominations of churches or groups of Christians who say you, you should not ever drink alcohol. You should not um, watch certain movies. You should not dance, right? Uh, and we come up with all these different lists of things that you should not do this, you should not do this, you should not do this, and we see them as rules, but the heart behind them is we don't want to begin to uh, look like or reflect the culture around us. And so we establish these traditions and these customs and rituals that aren't necessarily tied to Scripture, but we need to come up with something so we're battling not looking or resembling like culture. And this is what the Jewish people or the Pharisees began uh, to do. So by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, two things have now happened to the Pharisees. Rules and customs have become so rigid, like very rigid, that it was more externally focused, meaning more externally focused about your dress. I would not work. I mean, they would probably flog me and stone me and then do it again twice. They were coming up with uh, dietary uh, ways of things you could eat and could not eat. So a lot of these things were just externally focused rules. And then the second thing that had began to happen with these guys is it became incredibly small-minded and just obsessed with the details of just personal uh, behavior. Over a few hundred years, it happened very slowly, but by the time we meet them, meet the Pharisees, they've completely lost their way. 
It became external performance, not an internal passion or an internal conviction that was based in a love for God or a love for people. But that's where it started. This might actually resemble your story. You would never want to admit and say, I'm a Pharisee. But how many of us have lost our way? There was at one point an internal focus of, I I love Jesus, I love God, and I love people. But somewhere along the line, there was, along the way, there was a conversion of sorts from an internal passion to an external performance. Tonight, the text that we're going to look at, I want to answer that question. How do I avoid losing my way? How do I avoid becoming that Pharisee that's all about external performance and has no heart, has no internal connection with people and, most importantly, with God? It's so subtle. When I was reading and researching uh, kind of the history of these guys, I was so sad that they started so well. They started so strong. And then they lost their way. So much so where we even mentioned their name, Pharisee, or a hypocrite, fake. God protect us of that ever happening to us. Whether it's two years from now or 20 years from now, the sad reality is research data tells us What keeps non-Christians away from Christians, from church, is we're viewed as hypocrites. The very thing that we read in the Bible that drives us nuts is the very thing that's driving people who are not here nuts. And I just wonder, is there anyone saying, I'm going to do it differently? I will not be a play actor. I will not be an externally performance-based Christian. I will be an internally driven man or woman who loves God and who loves people. So this is the question. How do I avoid losing my way? And how do I avoid becoming that individual who is externally focused, performance driven, rather than interior passion for Jesus? Mark chapter 2, verse 18. This is the second question. Remember the first question the Pharisees asked was, Jesus, why do you hang out with sinners? This is their second question. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So the question to Jesus is, what's up with your disciples? Ours are fasting. John's are fasting. What's up with yours? Yours are not as, as pious, or what's, what's the deal? Why aren't your disciples doing this very thing that we're supposed to be doing? Why aren't you leading them to do these very things? Now, Primary reasons for fasting, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, in this first century culture, was it was a sign of being uh, aesthetic or pious. If you wanted to appear to be very devout, very spiritual, fasting was one of the ways you would do that. Now, if you remember John the Baptist, this guy was hardcore pious. Lived in the desert, dressed like Obi-Wan Kenobi, ate weird crickets, and screamed at people for his living. But there's a difference of having a piety that's driven by faith and a piety that's driven by performance. The Pharisees' piety was being driven by performance. A second reason is uh, the thought was, if I fast, this will hold off the evil world. Meaning, I will not be attacked or I will not be come after by demons. 
the thought was the more I fast, the more I will be protected from the demonic realm. A third reason was it was an act of self-renunciation. It was a way to impress God. If I fast, God will be like, wow, you are so spiritual. What do you need? Call it out. It's yours. This was the thought. And by the way, it's still a thought for a lot of us. If I fast, if I do something very spiritual, somehow God will smile and be like, you are so hardcore, I will bless you with whatever you want, whenever you want, right now. What do you want? Name it. A second thing, or a fourth thing was to atone for sins. People who just were overwhelmed with a sense of guilt, fasting was a way to, to say, if I do this, I will show God how sorry, how remorseful I am for my sin. Certainly, God is going to have mercy or forgiveness or compassion on me because, look, I am so low. I, I won't even feed myself. And there would be people who would do this for days and weeks on end just to show God how much they were worthy or how much they deserved forgiveness. Those are the reasons people fasted. That's their question. Why aren't they doing this? Jesus' answer is found in 19 and 20 of chapter 2. Jesus answered, and he gives an illustration. How can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on this day they will fast. Jesus is not saying that we should not fast. He's saying there's a time for it, and the time is not now. But there will come a time when Jesus is taken away that fasting would be highly appropriate. Imagine there's a lot of people who, there's seven or eight couples actually here, who are getting engaged within the next uh, eight months actually. Imagine if you're showing up and all of the guests show up. I mean, this is like a big day, right? This is a huge celebration. Imagine if people showed up at your wedding uh, party, went to the ceremony, came to your celebration feast, and they had fasting clothes on meaning they were dressed down to play the part. And you're like, what's going on? Well, I'm fasting today. What? What? It's, why? This is a celebration. This is a time to feast. This is not a time to fast. It would be highly inappropriate if someone showed up at someone else's wedding and said, no, I've declared this day is going to be a day of fasting. This is what Jesus is saying to them. This is ridiculous. These guys cannot be in my presence and fast because there's such great joy. Remember who Jesus is, Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 1. This is God's son, the Messiah. These guys cannot help but have a continually cele a, a celebration or a feast. So Jesus is saying this is not a funeral, but this is a wedding feast. He gives a second illustration, Mark chapter 2, 21 and 22. No one sews a patch on unshrunken cloth uh, on an old garment. If he does, the new pieces will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the skin, wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. You take your old favorite pair of jeans, like, like favorite, like you've had them for years. They've got holes in them. You actually like the holes, but they're starting to get too big, so you need to put a patch in them. You have to put material in the jeans that are going to be, it's not brand new. If you have a piece of fabric that has not ever been shrunk, not ever been used, and you try to sew it on your favorite old pair of jeans, as soon as you put your favorite jeans in the wash, 
the fabric will, what happened, it will shrink and make the hole in your jeans actually uh, bigger. It won't hold. He gives a second metaphor, second illustration. You can't take wine. These wineskins that he's talking about are very old and very brittle. You can't take brand new wine, which will expand once you pour it in there, because it's brittle, it's not pliable, it's not flexible, they will burst. Two separate metaphors, illustrations that Jesus is using to make one very simple point. The new that Jesus is ushering in is incompatible with the old. The new life that Jesus is offering, is inviting, is giving, it is absolutely not compatible with the Pharisees' way of living. So Jesus didn't come to patch up some faulty system that didn't work. I don't want you to see Jesus as a reformer. Jesus did not reform anything. He wasn't taking this old system that somehow was busted and he's going to fix it. Jesus is ushering in something completely brand new. And you can't take what Jesus is giving and try to fit it in or apply it to an old way of life. This is a good question for us. Is it, are you trying to fit Jesus into your old way of living? Or are you letting Jesus create a new life in you? There is a different, this is why we use language of when we come to Christ, we are new creations made brand new. We use language like born again. That's Jesus language, by the way. Meaning, you are not a refurbished version of your old self. But many of us, when we come to Jesus, begin a relationship with God, we see ourselves as just a refurbished version of our, our old self. And we try to squeeze Jesus into who we once were, how we used to think. Old patterns, old habits. And Jesus is saying, I will have nothing to do with that. I've come to usher in something completely brand new. You are a new creation. You are born again. Stop viewing yourself as a refurbished, old factory version. Do you know why? Because Jesus can't, you cannot contain Jesus in that life. This is the metaphor. This is the answer that Jesus is giving. Why don't your disciples fast? It would not make sense, uh, this is in the metaphors that he gives, is you can't take what Jesus is giving, offering, inviting, and form it into an old way. He gives the third question. This is, first question is, why do you hang out with sinners? The second question is, why don't your disciples do these things? The third question is found in chapter uh, 2, 23, 24. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? It's like the Pharisees are following him around. And they're just waiting for him to trip up, wanting him to trip up. And so they're observing him through binoculars maybe or just up close. What's he going to do in the grain field? It's Sabbath. If he picks something, this is broken law. This is what legalism turns you into. If you're a legalist, you're always looking to find fault. You're always waiting for and actually celebrating when someone messes up or makes a mistake. This is what the legalist mentality will turn your life into. This is the question, though. Whose law were they breaking, God's or their own? Because they said, why are they breaking the law? So is this really broken God's law, or is it really broken their pharisaical law? 
Well, Deuteronomy 23, uh, chapter, 20, or chapter 23, verse 25, gives the answer. It says this, if you enter into your neighbor's grain field, this is in the greater context of Deuteronomy of saying, take care of the poor, take care of the needy. So when they're in your fields, be okay with them taking grain. That's the background, the context. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to his standing grain. Meaning, you can't go into some guy's uh, field and start whacking away and taking all of his stuff. That's not what's happening here. Jesus didn't have all of his disciples with these sickles busting down this guy's grain field. They're walking along, and they take some grains uh, to eat. So, first of all, they don't apparently know uh, what the law says, which is surprising because they're Pharisees. They're students of God's word. But, again, legalism will have you interpret God's word in order to fit your legalistic ways. Jesus goes on to answer them, uh, and a great answer. He says in verse 25 through 28, he answered, Have you never read? Okay, this is like a slap in the face. This is looking at a guy who prides himself on being the most well-read person in Old Testament. So for Jesus to say, haven't you guys read, is an insult at best. What do you mean, haven't we read? We've got the thing memorized. Jesus says, haven't you read, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? He goes back to an individual in the Old Testament. These guys should know well. This is King David. This is not some abstract figure who only gets like one verse. This is King David. He is, his companions were hungry and in need. In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate some of the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. The story that Jesus quotes, you can uh, read up on it, is in 1 Samuel chapter 21. But David goes into uh, the temple area and eats the most consecrated bread that is reserved, the bread of presence that is reserved for only the priest to eat. What they did not remember about the story is that David was not uh, condemned or rebuked for doing that. And so Jesus is asking them, don't you even remember Deuteronomy? Don't you remember what King David did himself? He's getting hit with this question of why do your disciples break the law? And Jesus is coming back at them saying, you don't even know what the law says. Let me do a word association again with you. Jesus gives them some instruction on Sabbath. So when I say Sabbath, first thing that comes to mind, just think it to yourself. I say Sabbath, word association, what is the word, the phrase maybe, that comes to mind? Guilt, these are my words. Guilt because, hmm, I don't practice Sabbath like I should. Which is funny because that hints to a little Pharisee in me of saying, I should practice it a certain way. Or rules, burden, not possible, uncertainty of what it means. In your word association of Sabbath, did anyone, to be honest, did anyone think of the word gift? See, this is what Jesus is trying to tell them. 
the Pharisees are treating the Sabbath as if it's a burden. They're communicating to the people, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. You're breaking rules, breaking laws, breaking all these customs. The Sabbath was just nothing but a guilt-ridden, burdensome day. And Jesus says, you are so dead wrong. Wouldn't it be amazing if our first thought when I heard Sabbath was, I smiled and I said, gift. And this is what Sabbath is. Jesus makes that very clear when he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is another way of saying, Sabbath, this is a gift from God to you. This is not a gift you give back to God from you. The Pharisees had the, the former. They didn't treat it as a gift. And I just wonder, as you think about Sabbath, day of rest, it just means rest. Do you see that as God's gift to you, or do you see it as just the spiritual practice discipline that you have to do it because you're going to break one of the Ten Commandments if you don't? I would so love for all of us to hear that word Sabbath and say, this is God's gift to me. I want you to hear this. You and I are not robots. We were not created just to produce and manufacture and generate. We were not produced to go seven days a week, 24 hours a day, never turning off. I know we live in a time and a culture and a society that never sleeps, that never stops. But we were not created to be robots. God gave humanity a great gift in saying, take a day of rest. When someone asks you a question, this question, what have you been doing? Does anyone feel compelled to say, have, even if you're not doing something, to come up with something, just so you don't have the appearance that you're not doing anything? I mean, how many times does someone just call you on the phone and say, hey, what are you up to? And you could literally just be sitting there doing nothing, but you'll make up something because you'll feel like this lazy, slothful person if you just said, I'm just sitting here. What do you mean? You're not producing? You're not making? You're not creating? You're not working? You lazy person. There's just something that's in us that when someone asks us, what are you doing? I feel compelled. I want to tell them I'm working. I'm working very hard. I haven't slept in three weeks. Are you impressed? Like working 100 hours a week is not impressive. I know to the culture we live in, it might be impressive because you have the appearance of being a hard worker. Someone who actually does that is an insecure person. And they will wake up one day and realize, I've missed it. I've absolutely missed it. A Sabbath is a day that is a gift from God. Do not miss it as a gift. Do not treat it as a burden of what you can do and can't do. It's a day where you can just rest and just be. Where I don't create, where I don't produce, where I don't generate, where I don't manufacture. God said it's a, a day that is set apart as holy. Meaning there should be one day in our week that looks completely different than the other six. Let me just put it that way. Don't create rules of you can't do this and you can't do that because that's kind of working. Um, 
see it as a gift because that's what Jesus says. And then what I love, Jesus finishes, he says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, meaning I have authority over the Sabbath, Jesus is telling these Pharisees. Meaning, if these guys want to eat some food and they want to pick some grain, guess what? They have my permission. They have my blessing. They can do it. So leave them alone. It's a gift, and Jesus is the one who is Lord over our Sabbath. He goes on to his fourth and final question, and what's really great about this question, remember, why do you eat with sinners, Jesus? Why aren't your disciples fasting? Why do they break Sabbath rule, Sabbath law? Jesus now turns the question on them. And what I love is Jesus gives intelligent answers questions that they, they can't respond to, that are scripturally based, and he renders them silent with his question. Remember, I'm driving to a point, if you've forgotten, how do I avoid missing it? How do I avoid being that individual who will wake up five years from now and realize I'm totally externally performance-based? I'm not internally driven by a relationship and a love for God and a love for people. Mark chapter 3. Another time, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. That means a man whose hand, his arm was paralyzed. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. So this guy has got paralysis in his arm, and the only thing that the Pharisees can see is an opportunity to accuse him. The guy has got paralysis in his arm, and they don't see a human being who's in desperate need of healing. They see this as a unique opportunity to watch what Jesus is going to do. And so Jesus, knowing this, he turns the table, and he asks them a question. Verse 3 and 4, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. I can only imagine... That probably was me. You want me to stand up in front of this crowd of hundreds of people here that are at the temple? Are you going to humiliate me? Are you going to embarrass me? Are you going to heal me? I can't imagine what it would have been like for this guy to, Jesus, say, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, check this question out. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? They remained silent. Three times Jesus answered the question. A beautiful response. One question renders these guys silent. How do you answer this question? If you say, yeah, I think uh, death is better and I think evil is better on the Sabbath. Well, you're kind of an idiot for saying that. And you have no heart. And they will get found out. If they stand up in front of everyone and say, well, we choose death and we choose evil. Really? But you're the ones who are supposed to uphold God's law. But this is the thing. If they say choose life or choose good, they'll have to break their own laws. And these guys, their hearts over the years have grown so hard, so callous, so indifferent, that they choose nothing. Because to choose evil and death 
is unacceptable to them because they'll get discovered, found out. To choose life, to choose good, they'll have to bend. They'll have to transform. They'll have to say our rule, our regulation, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold up. And so they choose nothing. But what's sad is even though they said nothing, what their actions do reveals where their hearts actually are. Verse 5 and 6, these are the last two verses we'll look at. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus answered his own question. What honors God is life. What honors God is goodness, not death and not evil. So on the Sabbath, it is better to do good than to do evil. It would have been evil to ignore this man, not to demonstrate compassion or to choose death over life. Very interesting, Jesus gets angry. And the anger that Jesus, that Mark is speaking of is this righteous indignation. I don't know if you've ever felt that, but if you've ever just witnessed or seen evil, it's that anger that stirs inside of you that says, this is not right. What's happening here is evil. And it saddens your heart. It's a righteous indignation for what the evil that happens around us. And then Jesus goes on to say, and Mark records, that he began, he was deeply distressed because of their stubbornness. And the word stubbornness is, speaks to their hard-heartedness. What happens to a human being, to these Pharisees, men who were set apart to preserve a way of Jewish identity, to preserve a way of loving one God, Yahweh, to now when God shows up in flesh, the Son of God, within three chapters, they're ready to kill him. What happens to a person where their heart becomes so hard that their only thought is, let's just ignore him, is no, we must kill him. That's what happened to these Pharisees. And the road to someone who is living in externally performance-based faith, that's your destination. So if you want to end up a year from now, five years from now, 10 years, 50 years from now, with a hard heart, external performance-based driven faith. Follow the rules that you'll make up for yourself. Walk down that road, and it's a road that will lead to a heart that ultimately is dead. Dead towards God, dead towards humanity. But if you want to not walk down that road, it's not about an external performance. It's about an internal relationship of faith. That's not driven by performance, but that's ultimately driven by Jesus. I want to show you a clip real quick from one of my favorite movies called Les Mis. And if you're not uh, familiar with uh, Les Mis, uh, it's an incredible story. And one day I would love to go see it on, uh, at the theater uh, on the big stage and just uh, and experience it. But I'm not that cultured yet. 
Um, so I've seen the movies. It's an incredible story of a man named Jean Valjean whose life was transformed by one act of grace. One act of grace. This guy was pegged as a criminal, spent hard time in jail because he stole some food. Spent years and years. He's released and he meets a priest that he beats and he steals from this priest and this priest gives him grace, gives him forgiven, or forgiveness, extends a hand of compassion. And he says, I've redeemed you. Live a different life. And over the years, Jean Valjean meets a man, the chief inspector, the chief of police, Javert, I think is how you pronounce it, Javert, something like that. And this man is as modern-day Pharisee as we will get and hunts Jean Valjean down. And there's an incredible moment where Jean Valjean has the opportunity to put a bullet in this man's head. And this man is actually wanting this to happen because it's to follow the rules. And Jean Valjean says, no, I choose compassion. I choose mercy. I choose forgiveness. And at the very end of the movie, the end of the play, the chief inspector has the opportunity. I'll just let you see it. Go ahead and play it. Bring him here. That is an important memo for the prefect. We'll explain what I've done with the prisoner. Make sure he sees it before breakfast. Sir. I'm glad I had time to myself. I needed to think about what you deserve. You're a difficult problem. Move to the edge. Why aren't you taking me in? You're my prisoner. Do what I tell you. You don't understand the importance of the law. I've given you an order. Obey it. Why didn't you kill me? I don't have the right to kill you. But you hate me. I don't hate you. I don't feel anything. You don't want to go back to the quarries, do you? Then for once we agree. Going to spare you from a life in prison, Jean Valjean. It's a pity the rules don't allow me to be merciful.
John's character is not a Messiah figure here, so I don't want you to try to over-spiritualize uh, something. If that was Jesus, he probably would have jumped in the water to get him. And you have to maybe know a little bit more of the story to understand the significance of what the man did. Um, but he witnessed over the years a man whose life had been transformed by grace. And he continued to see compassion and mercy in the way this man lived. And one of the most telling things is at the end, he just says, I've tried to live my life without breaking one rule. This was the mantra, as it were, for the Pharisees. We will not break any rules that we have established. Because if we break any rules, we will become like everyone else. And what was amazing, you have to, I, I put this book out here, you can take a look at it, is he makes, uh, Javert makes the decision, at the end of his life he sees grace, compassion, mercy in Jean Valjean, and I cannot live that life. I would rather die than have to become that person. The Pharisees make this decision. Jesus was telling them, you cannot fit this newness of life into your old system, into your old structure. It will not hold. It will not work. And rather than be transformed by the life that Jesus was inviting the Pharisees to live, they could not change. And so they plotted to kill him. I don't want any of us to wake up tomorrow, a week, a month, a year, 10 years from now, slowly have drifting away from what matters most. My question when I started tonight was, how do I make sure that I do not have an external performance-driven based faith today, tomorrow, and wake up 10 years from now realizing I've become the very thing that I used to want to beat? How do I remain that individual who is internally driven by a relationship or a love for God? I'll give you three things as we finish. Don't cram Jesus into your existing life. Let Jesus breathe new life into you. Be born again. Be a new creation. Your way of thinking before you met Jesus, your heart before you, your hands, your feet. Do not try to cram Jesus into your former way of life who you used to be. It won't work. If you do, it will become externally driven performance-based faith. That's number one. Number two, remember the generosity of God. These guys had lost their way because they thought that God was not generous, that they had to be generous towards God. They reversed the Sabbath. And Jesus says, this is a gift from God to you, not a gift from you to God. If you ever stray away from remembering the generosity of God in your life, you'll begin to live a life that says, I must perform for him because he is not generous towards me. Do not cram Jesus into your old way of life. Be reborn. Remember that God is generous. He gives. 
and gives and gives. And lastly, love people. These Pharisees could stand in front of a man who was paralyzed in his arms and not look at him at all with any compassion or care or concern. They just were looking to see if someone was going to break a rule. How you love humanity, how you love people is ultimately a reflection of your love for God. Because you cannot be an individual who has a deep love, rooted love for God that does not manifest itself in how you love people. Don't cram Jesus in to a refurbished version of you. Remember the generosity of God and continue to love. Tonight, as I just finish, I want to challenge that there's all of us in here need to repent. I'm going to call for a conversion of sorts. There's some of us who are so religious, we need to convert from our religion and being the Pharisee that we, we said we'd never become. And we might not use the word Pharisee because it's too painful. So I'll soften it to say an externally driven performance-based faith. Convert from that faith to a faith that's rooted in Jesus, what Jesus has done, and only what Jesus has done, not what you're currently doing. And then there's some irreligious people who need to convert to Jesus. Making the decision to say, my life is going to start in a new direction starting tonight. Not being a refurbished old factory version, but being the new creation that Jesus has said I would be when I would give life to him. Born again. I don't know what your decision is, but I want to challenge you to make a decision tonight. I do not want myself or anyone to wake up 10 years from now saying, how did this happen? How did I get here? How did I become that person? Make a decision tonight. Father God, I just thank you that Jesus offers us not only a new way to live, but offers us life itself. Father, there was a group of men, the Pharisees, who started so well, protectors of the faith, trying to lead people to love Yahweh, but they lost their way. God, I pray that we would not be a people, we would not be a community that would lose our way. God, please spare us from that. Father, if there's anyone here tonight, which I imagine there are many, that need to convert from being a religious person, an externally driven, performance-based faith, God, I pray that there would be prayers of repentance and confession and prayers of just breathing new life, Jesus, tonight. And Father God, I pray that if there's people here tonight who have not yet made the decision to be born again, to be made new creations. God, I pray that hearts would be open tonight to receive you, Jesus Christ, to respond to the invitation of following you. If you would, just sit for a few minutes in silence and do some self-examination of the heart and let the Lord examine your heart. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. 
We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.